Welcome to Mission Forward, a podcast exploring how big ideas and social change take hold. My name is Carrie Fox, and I'm your host. Listen in as we talk with innovative thinkers, makers, and doers in social change, and we explore how foundations, philanthropists, and corporate and community leaders are challenging business as usual in order to move missions forward in meaningful and memorable ways. Today, we're talking with Ken Zakalik, Director of Innovation at ALSAC St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, where he leads the nonprofit's in-house innovation team, which is cool in itself, but it's not just any innovation team. St. Jude recently took the number one spot on Fast Company's 2020 list of best workplaces for innovators. And having seen Ken in action, I can attest to how much he has contributed to building a thriving culture very worthy of such an honor. Since its very beginning, St. Jude has embraced forward-thinking initiatives. Since Danny Thomas dreamed the idea of a hospital that would operate in the segregated South, where patients of all races would be treated together by physicians of all races. Thanks to that history of radical inclusion and innovation, St. Jude has moved the childhood cancer survival rate from 20% to more than 80% today. The hospital is also funded in large part by its donors, who have ensured that no family should ever pay for travel, treatment, housing, or food, because all they should worry about is helping their child live. In full disclosure, Mission Partners has been a proud partner and donor to St. Jude for the last many years. And Ken, as always, it is an honor to speak with you today. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. It's a pleasure to be here. Today's topic uh, here at Mission Forward, we are talking positive business disruption in the time of COVID and the ways that you and your team have leaned into this crisis to keep moving the mission of St. Jude forward. You know, we've been talking about this all year long, this idea that in crisis is born innovation, right? And you all have certainly leaned into that. But you've had a pretty solid runway of getting you ready and prepared for a moment like this, right? You have had an amazing career where you have been at the center of some pretty innovative, disruptive programs. And I want you to take me way back first, where we're going to start. Tell me a little bit about you um, and when this passion for innovation first set in. Thank you for that. Um, And thanks for asking. I'd say really early on, I started my career like anybody else would, um, worked in retail, Uh, eventually found an opportunity at an internet company. And this is way back in the days of dial-up. So that in and of itself was was sort of this new thing. Um, AOL was the dominant player and there were some small upstarts and they were trying to to enter this market. And I got a job in customer service and technical support. So I was the guy in my house that my family kept coming to to fix the computer and why won't it ring and, and all of that. And I applied those skills into that customer service role um, and being in that role, you deal with a lot of upset customers just because people don't call customer service because they're happy and thrilled. And I think at that point, I sort of looked at things a little differently than a lot of my peers. They started getting agitated by some of the callers that were calling in. And I figured I was in this really awkward situation in customer service. Why not have fun with it? So I don't know if you'll remember... Um, there was a service back in the day called Movie Phone where you could get movie time. Totally. And I found do do the movie phone voice really well. So I would answer the phone that way just because it was funner than just saying, hello, thank you for calling. And people would say, is this a computer? And I was like, no, I'm lively. I'm into it. Like, 
what can I do to help you? And long story short, I know it's too late, but they saw that and they said, well, you might be really good at retention. And so they moved me into another department for canceling, for people canceling to retain them into the business. And I started digging into how each of their problems was related, got into the telco system. And I gained this knowledge that they then wanted me to apply to do calling cards. And so I was on the cusp of creating this new calling card revolution. This is way back when Mabel was really going through the deconstruction and they started really selling these calling cards out um, in convenience stores and all that. So I did that for a while, helped to build that business. Um, and then as time went, they started trying to activate these cards instead of keeping them behind the counter. They wanted them in front of the counter. And they said, could you apply your knowledge of how these things are created to doing these point of sale systems? And I said, I'd love to. And we did that work. And then we created debit cards. So the gift carding stuff was created of that. Um, voice over IP technology for consumers was created out of that. And in this one company called IDT, I got all of these experiences. And so what I found in that is I really liked building things. And I think that there's three types and obviously there's more than three types, but I think there's people that are really good at opening a thing and there's people that are really good at operating a thing. And then there's people that are really good at seeing what's built and then optimizing a thing. And I think I'm not toxic in any of them, but I'm passionate about opening. And I think I'm pretty good at optimizing. But over time as an operator, I get stale. It just, I want to do something new and different. I just start craving the exploration. And so that's, I think, in the roots of where I started getting into innovation and trying new and different things is, is the realization that operating a business is not, is not mentally healthy for me over the core, over the long term. Um, and then the Great Recession hit. I decided I wanted to redefine my career and I went into web. I thought web 2.0 was where it's going to be. Um, I was lucky enough to work at some startups and then my friend hooked me up with a job in Marvel Comics. Uh, they were doing digital comics. And so that was another new thing that hadn't existed before. They were redoing their site in this new web 2.0 way. That was a new thing. Working through an expanded CMS, another new thing. And I was able to parlay that experience into a job doing an audience-centric backend for Estee Lauder. Then more and more startups. Eventually, my wife, who's from Memphis, Tennessee, wanted to move back home. I said, if I could find an opportunity, I'd love to. And I found a home at Alsac St. Jude um, who who needed optimization in their systems. And so I applied some of the skills that I had into optimizing those things. Um, the C- After doing that for a bunch of years, the CEO said, hey, we should be more innovative. Um, and I can get into that whole long story. But that's how the innovation, the formal innovation journey started. And you did not mention that the job right before this one, you were the organization's entrepreneur in residence, right? So that seems to be probably a pretty rare position inside a nonprofit, um, as is an innovation office. Have you seen those start to pop up more? Or do you still think St. Jude is really on the early edge of thinking about innovation and, and how they have embedded it inside the organization? So I've talked to a lot of people at a lot of companies, and there are innovation offices but I don't believe that even in for-profit organizations, there's a model that's just like ours or s- similar to the way that we think about innovation. And it's really born out of a, I'm going to go ahead and say out of a failure or out of organic learning. So when we started innovation, we worked to create a plan for how we thought that was going to work. And really, we thought that we could come up with really interesting things. Think about them like any startup to pitch it out for investment, and we would convince people in the organization to work on them. And what we realized is that nobody was doing that. And as a matter of fact, when we said, hey, we're working through this innovative thing, 
there's a little bit of mockery or confusion around what is innovation anyway. And so I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't even get people to align on what this definition is. How are they going to give me an investment of time, resources, money to, to push things ahead? And so that was one of the first turning points for how we as an organization think about innovation. And we really focused on the culture side of what innovation is, what it means, and not what it means <clears throat> in a dictionary sense, but what does it mean to who we are and how we move forward. And we created this really unique definition around thinking new things and doing new things, not that unique. And so we really started an effort that took around a year to get people to corral around that concept. And while we were doing that, we started to talk about some of the ways that we thought innovation and new different thinking could be injected into the strategies for our programs. So now we're building organically into a strategy function. So we started with a scope with a failed investment function that didn't work out into a culture function, into a strategy function. And after we got those aligned, we found that there were opportunities that we wish we had gotten in front of. But because of our inability to move that quickly, we couldn't. And we started coming up with an opportunities concept where we would get a group of people that could react to the new and different things coming up. And that's when we got this prototyping team. So this um, really research and development prototyping team. And it's in those three functions that I've never seen replicated. The people that are employing technology in a logistical sense to try and get automation or um, technology to help make things work better, but they're not helping on the culture side. They're not necessarily helping on the strategy side and the opportunity side. They're in one of those areas. And we actually, as a, as a greater team, have all of them consolidated different goals for each area, but we're all, we're all rowing in the same direction. We're all in the same boat trying to achieve the same things. And we all overlap each other as an innovation team. And I think that's the secret sauce. Hi, I'm Bridget Pooley. Chief Operating Officer at Mission Partners. Has 2020 thrown your strategic communications plans out the window? Do you need to get your team back on track for the start of a new year? We can help. At Mission Partners, we believe the best solutions require a clear vision of the end results. Through our interactive, immersive, and virtual visioneering sessions, we will guide you and your team to alignment around shared values and a shared vision, providing new perspective to your stickiest problems and mapping key actions to get you there. Visit mission.partners backslash let's go for more information on our signature virtual visionary sessions. You all are largely working remotely, right? So talking about collaboration, talking about rowing in the same direction, right? That is a hard, hard thing when we're all apart. But thinking about COVID-19 and how much of a disruptor it's been, right? So how organizations are showing up this year, how they are learning to work, how they are putting new process into place to keep things moving forward. I'm curious what you have learned about how to keep work moving forward and how to keep this innovative mindset top and front when they're top and center, when there is so much uncertainty all around us. I think in general, what we try to do is we try to look five years out and say, what is it that we think is going to come up that we're going to want to be a part of? And we orient the bulk of what we think about into that bucket. And when closer-term opportunities come up, we really try to partner with our core product teams that can incrementally move in directions to help make scenarios better, donation forms better. Um, and we do that for two reasons. One, we don't want to step on anybody's toes. 
Two, if we're not thinking about five, 10 years into the future, nobody else is. And so when COVID hit, we were, it was really an interesting thing. So going back a few years, when we started doing our prototyping function, one member of the team wanted to focus on doing VR and he did VR in his house. Um, and he said, here's a virtual tour of my house. And then Rick Shadiak, our CEO said, do it of one of our facilities. And he did it. And then he said, great, I'm going to invest. We're going to create this virtual environment of what our hospital is. And he, and we did the work, but we couldn't find the traction. We couldn't see the marketing advantage to putting it out into the world in a meaningful way that we should push people to. And so it was there and it worked, but it was really just shelved. But that, that was 2016. So 2017. So cut to March of 2020 when we no longer can bring people through the hospital. And we were able to look at it and say, we've got this tool that allows people to walk through our halls to meaningfully become engaged with what we're doing, have awareness of all the aspects of our mission. Um, and it's sitting there and it's ready to go. And so we just dusted it off, made it look more modern. And now it's out there and it's doing phenomenally well. And that really validates the hypothesis that we had about looking five years ahead yeah. and saying, how are we going to do that? So that's an example of how I think we situated ourselves really well for the future, even though nobody could have predicted that COVID was going to hit and that 2020 was going to be the way that it is. But we did anticipate that technology was going to get us to a place where we felt like we could offer this technology to people that couldn't come to Memphis, Tennessee. And we just happened in this one technology to hit upon when nobody could come to, to Memphis, Tennessee. And how we're orienting for the future, I think is really interesting. So I would say in late 2019, early 2020, we were working on redefining what our in-person events experience looked like. And we did it through this program that we have called an accelerator where a bunch of teams were coming in and they were trying to develop new and different models, business models. It's another area of how we think about innovation. And we had this really interesting concept that we thought was going to be really beneficial and impactful for, for everybody, for our organization, for attendees. And smack dab in the middle of that accelerator program, COVID hit. And we weren't going to have a test platform for us to try this new event experience in. But we had built certain pieces of infrastructure to facilitate it, like registration um, and personalization and things like that. So we have an accelerator. It's not over yet. We're not able to launch what we're working on. And so we said, what do we do now? And the team in that case pivoted and they said, we want to work on virtual event experiences. And so we said, okay, well, you have eight weeks left, better than sitting there doing nothing. Let's, let's give that a shot. And I, I remember asking the team specifically, I don't want to create something that's a virtual event experience. That's a reactionary thing. Right now, we already do that in a lot of our events. We were using Zoom. In fact, we still are. We're looking for another platform to replace what we lost in our in-person events. I said, let's look at examples of, of how people have been using technology more meaningfully for the last few years, right? I mean, so if we're thinking five years ahead, we're actually a little late on this one because museums have been moving their collections online for years at that point. There have been um, DJ sets and clubs that have been moving online only. So I said, okay, let's focus on what if we did a virtual event experience that was not reactionary, was not tied to any other program that we had, was new, was different, and we can scale it. So it becomes a new part of what our business is. And so when everything goes back to normal, 
we now have this infrastructure and this experience that is so valuable that we can keep it going and we can actually grow teams around it. And that's, that's where we are right now. Um, we're actually in the tail end, I hope, of being able to launch a prototype of what we think this in-person event experience looks like. I remember the first time I visited St. Jude, I had a chance to put the VR headset on. And I remember saying to the folks in the room, St. Jude is so far ahead of the game, right? Just always so far ahead of the game. And and you are now too, right? As you're thinking about this. But I wonder, you know, there's a lot of people who could say, we're going to look five years out and we're going to plan and they're going to be totally wrong with what they choose, right? Like they could think they see something and it could never come. But what I know, having seen you all in action and for the last couple of years where you've put your resources is you really read the future well. And that is a hard thing to do. So I'm kind of curious, right? Let, is that a skill that you learn? You know, how, how you learn what to listen to and what, what you um, focus in on and what you say is uh, that's a trend that's, that maybe isn't worth looking at, right? Like, is, how do you do that? So it's sort of interesting. I mean, I, I think I'm lucky to be working with a really talented team. So let's just start the team being <laughs> incredibly talented. There's a few different areas that I think that, that are differentiated. So <clears throat> within the innovation team, we do this thing called exploration time. And so we, we section off a max of 20% time. And look, sometimes it drifts more. And if you have nothing to explore, it drifts way less. Um, and there's a few different things. So all of the people in the team are really interested in different things, but they're all oriented around technology and what's coming down the pike. So I'm going to answer this question in two different parts. Mm-hmm. One, when we were thinking about our event experience, about a year ago, a member of our team was really into electric dance music. And so was going to these online concerts, found a platform platform called Wave, Wave VR, and it was a virtual real-time concert. And the way that they set up their platform was really unique, and he was so, so into it. I said, how many people are going to this thing? And he said, thousands of people are going to this thing. I said, are they engaging or are they just listening? He's like, they are engaging. They're able to manipulate the environment and they are there. And I said, how many of them have you been to? And he's like, I've been to a few. And I said, how many have other? Long story short, I started asking these questions and I'm seeing that there's this traction built. And so it's the lens of, I'm not into it. It's not my thing per se. I wouldn't have stumbled upon it, even though I think it's awesome. And I, it is very cool. I do recommend you see it. But it was this person's passion that allowed me to understand this market that I hadn't thought about before. So we did a benefit concert with Wave, with Lindsay Sterling, and we had a phenomenal result with it. And there's a lot of those interactions that we are now applying into our virtual event experience. I'll also say that there's a lot of areas that we explore that are wrong, but it's not about being right and creating the correct business model today. It's about understanding what you're learning through the journey. And if somebody were to say, what do you think you've excelled at? I think, I think maybe you did just say that, ask that. <laughs> it's about being able, being able to manipulate the story to say, yes, we set out to explore blockchain or virtual reality or a new engagement platform. And we've learned all of these things. And so, yes, we didn't come out with the end that we anticipated, but we were able to tell the narrative that the learnings of that exploration allowed us to pivot into the new thing that is now creating a ton of value. But the writing's on the wall in so many different ways. I mean, if you're not looking at how Shopify is phenomenally successful and understanding what are the touch points there that you could be capitalizing on, you just need to pick up a newspaper somewhere and look at those platforms and their performance. There's people that are absolutely killing it and their technology is something that any party can use. And really, it's not about reading tea leaves. It's about just seeing what trends are happening and, and where things are moving. Um, 
And I'll give you another really quick example. We're not done with it yet, but we know blockchain is coming. And we know that commercial viability of blockchain and corporate infrastructure is going to be a stretch for anybody. And so really, we try to figure out how do we learn about blockchain technology through a novel approach that allows us to gain learnings. And that, and, and we created this really interesting naming opportunity with digital twins for named opportunities in real life and on the blockchain. And we're tying them together, not because we think there's a huge market opportunity in that, in that business model, but because it's some opportunity, but it allows us to learn the technology that we may need to apply in the future. For folks who might not know, St. Jude is raising about a billion dollars every year, right? To be able to fund your mission and make sure that no family ever pays for, for services. But what you've done in terms of how you and the team and St. Jude at, at, at large, how you've kind of diversified your revenue sources, right? And especially this year, this is showing itself very, very clearly. Of all of the nonprofits that we have worked with over the course of the last 20 years, you know, we think about all of those who this year was a breaking year for them, who had put everything, everything into building an annual conference or building a gala that amounted or accounted for 60% of an annual revenue of an organization, right? And then suddenly that is gone. And you can't just make that up by saying, we're going to take this event and make it virtual, right? It's just it's very difficult for that for that to happen for organizations. But how you've really been thinking about dual transformation, right? This idea that you got to stay the course and continue to do what's working well while creating enough space to really innovate and drive into the future. Well, thank you. We have really great leadership that helps to drive prioritization and vision. So it makes it a lot easy, a lot easier for us on the innovation side to justify some of our bets. Yeah. It wouldn't work, though, if it wasn't the right kind of team, right? If you think about the characteristics that have to be in place, you know, what's got to work to make a team of uh, be able to introduce innovative big ideas and to be able to get them to move forward? So I'm kind of curious what you've learned um, about what needs to be in place in order for innovative ideas to move forward. I think it's important to understand as you had mentioned, your main points of revenue. And I think that if you've got too much revenue into a basket, like an event, I know that for us, it was direct mail at the time, you need to start encouraging your teams to start thinking differently and outside of the box and looking at what other organizations are doing. That's key. One of the things that we always did early on when we were start trying to justify some of the efforts, and we still do this today, is we create business plans and pitch decks for everything that we do. And we try to articulate what is the value of our approaching the new thing differently. It always helps if you've got a dedicated team that is capable of delivering end to end. And, and if you, if you're in a place where you're beg, borrow, steal people to build specific things, you'll get, you'll get a little bit of a distance. But if you can get people that are dedicated to exploring the new and different, you're going to be miles ahead because they can help you to start thinking strategically. But the key thing there is to do the business modeling and create a pitch deck scenario. We do it like any other startup. We've got this idea. We think that the market looks like this. We think it costs us this much money to get into the market. And we think over the course of five years, it produces this much value. And as a benefit, I think that we learn X over the course of the journey. Now we can pass all of that learning and all of those, those skills and abilities that we learn to the rest of the organization to also deploy. So now it becomes democratized. Um, we also really put a focus on knowing what are the levers for value. And so for, for ALSAC, it's awareness, engagement, cultivation, and fundraising. 
And if I can create a business plan that hits upon any number of those levers, I'm now not now just beholden to fundraising. And I'll give you an example from, from one of the things that we built. When we're doing VR, and I'll admit, we're not raising a ton through our VR and our virtual tour experience. We are working on that. But it was around awareness and engagement. And if we can get people to walk through the halls, they're going to be tied to our mission. And then what can we do with them through any other program that we have? So it's about understanding those levers, creating those business plans that allow people to under, people in your organization to understand the, the long-term value of investing in this way. And then giving people the, the bandwidth to be able to do those types of things. So that's my tip for anybody starting out. And I will tell you, like tactically, because I'm, I'm really about giving practical, not philosophical, but like practical ways to do it. When we were doing this earlier on and we were trying to justify some of our projects, I looked up startup pitch decks that I thought were successful. And I can tell you that I downloaded the mint.com <laughs> pitch deck a hundred times. Airbnb, <laughs> they've all got the bones of everything that you would need. All you have to do is replace their words, but their models are there and they show the value generation that exists. It also gives you the opportunity to second guess whether you're doing a good investment or not. Um, and so that's what I would do. Just download those pitch decks, articulate what you need to be successful, build them out, and then sell it like you would any other startup. Um, that's that's sort of how we started out in the beginning. Yeah, that's awesome. I think it's also important for folks to hear in that answer that innovation is a mindset and it has to be continuously driven throughout an organization, right? This idea of we're going to come together for our annual retreat or our mid-year retreat and we're going to talk about what the future looks like, that is not enough to sustain the kind of true deep innovation that you're all working on. And, that, and that's that's a great point. And I have to say, I mean, while I'd like to think that we had a hand in the fact that we won that fast company acknowledgement, the whole organization earned that acknowledgement through the work that they were doing independent of what the innovation team was doing. And I'd like to think that some of our processes have helped lead the way. And in fact, I don't know if this is the popular view. I hope there was some level of competition that existed in our organization that they said, hey, we can out innovate the innovation team. And that be so happy because on the culture side, that's our goal. We are ultimately trying to work ourselves out of a job. We want the rest of the organization to be able to innovate themselves so that maybe we can do a ventures program or an accelerator program or any number of other things. But if we were responsible for all the innovation, that, that pressure, that burden would be just crazy. And so we love that. We love that we're hearing from the rest of the organization that they may not need us or they just want our quick opinion. Um, but they're not dependent on us. They are now in a position to be able to drive this stuff for themselves. Really cool. This has been a tough year. No surprise about that. What are the silver linings that you were seeing? Um, if you think about what have we learned, what is innovated, what, is, what have we, how have we adapted? What do we hold on to going forward? What are the silver linings of this tough year? So for my organization, it's the try it methodology. And we've had that from, from leadership. And I remember, and I don't want to, I don't want to misquote, but the sentiment was stop with the refined planning and the over preparing, come up with an idea, talk to some people about it, validate whether it makes sense and put it out and see how it works. And that's really akin to the lean startup methodology, right? Put something out into the world and see how your market responds to the thing you're putting out. And if they're not responding, kill it. And if they are responding, but not the way that you want them to respond, iterate it and try it again and keep challenging yourself to do it again and again and again. And what I think is the silver lining is that I really think 
you're starting to see organizations for who they really are out there in the world. And I always talk about these organizations that have these giant footprints across the United States that deal in consumer goods that could have served in, instead of furloughing their staff, they could have said, let's be a pick pack operation. Let's use the staff that doesn't have anything else to do to drive products to people's houses in a delivery capacity. And they didn't do it. And instead, Amazon continues to dominate next day and same day delivery. And if I'm any number of these large corporations that had this footprint and these same products, I, I don't even know how I would feel about myself that I would allow some other player that didn't have that footprint to be that player. And I think you're really starting to see who, what the DNA of all these organizations are. And that's good because it, it gives you an opportunity to understand how to leverage those players and or come alongside of them and or help them and or just understand that you can't rely on them and you, you should be doing things differently. Um, I love all of that. I'm getting a huge education. I'm getting the biggest education about business in this time. And, and that's the silver lining for me. That's really cool. Well, I have gotten a huge education getting to learn and watch you and your team. So uh, thank you, Ken, for taking some time to chat today and um, for everything you do. Looking forward to seeing what, what comes up. I appreciate that. Thank you for the opportunity. And that brings us to the end of yet another episode of Mission Forward. We've got just one more episode left this season, and I can't wait to share it with you next week. We're also getting ready to record the next season, and we are on the hunt for great humans, people who are challenging business norms, driving impact, and centering equity in their work. If you've got someone we should consider, please drop me a line at carrie at mission.partners. So as we wind down this season, I would really appreciate you sharing and reviewing the show with your colleagues who you believe will find our work and these interviews as powerful as we do. Until then, keep moving your mission forward.